In just a few minutes, we'll be in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5. We'll read the whole chapter, Nehemiah, chapter 5. We'll be there in just a few minutes if you'd like to go ahead and find your way there. I was up late last night going over my message and trying to figure out what I was going to cut out of it and what I was going to keep. And uh, so I was up pretty late trying to figure that all out. And I guess we'll just see where we end up uh, this morning. Did you know that debt is a national problem in the United States? According to the Treasury's official website, as of November 2019, the national debt stands over a staggering $23 trillion. For comparison, in 2008, the debt was around $9 trillion, and in 2016, it was about $19.3 trillion. Estimates say that the debt grows at a rate of around $1 million every single minute. Let's think about personal debt. Statistics show that half of the average American household spends more than they earn every single year. In addition, credit card spending continues to increase year after year. Let me ask you a different question this morning. Would you feel guilty being a millionaire? There seems to be this general thought in evangelical circles that if someone has a lot of money, they should feel guilty because they have a lot of money. Or if you have nice things, you should feel guilty because you have nice things. Especially if you're in the ministry. You can't have nice things and be in the ministry. Otherwise, you need to feel guilty. Having money is not wrong. In fact, having a lot of money is not wrong. The problem comes when we love our money more than we love God. But that does not make it categorically wrong to have money. John Piper has called people to what he calls a wartime lifestyle. He writes, in wartime we spend money differently. There is austerity, not for its own sake, but because there are more strategic ways to spend money than on new tires at home. Later, he writes, a $70,000 salary does not have to be accompanied by a $70,000 lifestyle. No matter how grateful we are, gold will not make the world think that our God is good. It will make people think that our God is gold. Piper has a good point. We would do well to hear it. We also need to balance it with other truths of Scripture. Piper's goal was not to make people feel guilty for having riches or being blessed by God. There's nothing wrong with being a good steward or having nice things or even having money in our savings account. There is something wrong when having money in your savings account takes precedence over and above God in your life. There is something wrong when you have money in your savings account and you can look at your brother or sister in Christ who is struggling in their life and never lift a finger to help them. There is something wrong when you try to amass large amounts of wealth and enjoy the benefits of church membership and yet you're not willing to give to the church. The average church member gives only 2% of their income to the church. Can you see how it can look that we love money more than we love God. I've said to you before that 10%, which we always throw around, is not 
the ceiling, it is the floor. It's where we start when we consider a tithe. The church is dependent on its members to accomplish ministry. Take our church, for example. Do you know where our church is financially? Have you looked at financial statements? Do you know that in the six years that I've been the pastor, we have yet to bring in enough money to make budget in six years? Do you know that the single most significant expense of our church in the budgeted category is my salary? Do you know what runs through a pastor's mind when he sees the church year after year after year after year close in a deficit? I can assure you, as the pastor, it's not good things that run through my mind. I would challenge you this morning to take the time and see where our church is financially. I challenge you this morning to ask yourself, especially in light of this message that we're getting ready to look at, if you're doing all you can in this church to help advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. When it comes to money, our need is to balance all that the Bible teaches us. Our need is to understand that even if we sell all we have and give it away, we've not necessarily done that which would please God. We also need to know that living a life of indulgence at the expense of others does not please God either. We must steward what we have for God's glory and to advance the gospel. I, will believe, I believe that we will see some of that in this message if you would Please stand with me this morning out of respect for God's word as we read Nehemiah chapter 5. We will read the entire chapter. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Now there rose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? They were silent and could not find a word to say. And so I said, the king, or the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and the grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields and their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and their percentage of money, grain and wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, 
We will restore those and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from this house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. The people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their, even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also perceived in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Father, may your word speak to us this morning. May our hearts be laid barren in areas of our life where we experience greed, may it be gotten rid of. In areas of our life where we want to clench with closed fists your blessing, may we open our hand. Speak to us through your word this morning. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. Satan's arsenal has to now find a different way to defeat the rebuilding work. The solution is to turn within. Satan employs this classic strategy that a house divided against itself will not stand. J.I. Packer says, Satan is a hater, a wrecker, and a destroyer, and only when he is ruining God's work in individuals and communities is he happy. The, the attack is very contemporary in how it's played out. There is an attempt to discredit a figure, Nehemiah, as a leader and political strategist by digging for dirt, engaging in character assassination regardless of the truth of the claims made. People are fickle. And since the external threat subsided, pent-up grievances now emerge. Nehemiah is blamed out of frustration about personal finances and hardships regardless of who is actually responsible. So this chapter begins with these complaints by the Jews and ends with Nehemiah making steps to alleviate them. So first, let's see the point that's not in your notes, um, the cry of conflict. The cry of conflict. Actually, that is in your notes. My bad. The cry of conflict. According to verse 1, there's this great outcry. 
They're, they're desperate. It's a desperate call for help. There was a conflict where there should never have been a conflict. And what I mean by that is this. We must take notice of where this conflict is coming from. The conflict is coming from, uh, uh, is not coming from external enemies of the Jewish people, right? The conflict is coming from their own brothers. They are crying out against their own brethren. The strife had resulted in complete disunity among the people. We can expect conflict in the church, but it shouldn't be the norm. Internal conflict amongst the people of God should be inexcusable. The greatest damage that is done in most local churches is internal conflict, not external problems. Yes, there are external problems. And yes, there is external pressure on the church, but a church with the right focus will withstand external pressure. When we could say these workers had a legitimate problem, and I would agree with that. However, the more significant problem is how they handle it. So rather than take steps to correct the problem by informing Nehemiah earlier, they instead let the injustice sit in their heart and fester until they fully explode. And sometimes the way we handle a problem makes it a bigger problem. Maybe if they had consulted with Nehemiah earlier, it would have never come to this point. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever told to fight amongst ourselves. But we are repeatedly commanded to have unity amongst God's people. We're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. The church is to be a place of peace and unity where people can depend on one another. Let me just give you some things real quick that cause conflict in the church. First, the carnality of pride. We allow pride to stir in our flesh. And cause us to seek our way above all else within the body of Christ. And it causes conflict. Second, the corruption of power. When people use their power, they're in a position of power. And they try to manipulate others for personal gain. That will lead to conflict. Or when, they try, or when you try to take power away from certain individuals, that will lead to conflict. Third, the confusion of priorities. When people lose sight of what God wants in the church, it causes conflict. Fourth, the collapse of principles. When the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not being proclaimed in the body of Christ, it will cause conflict. And so we see this whole idea, this, this cry of conflict. And then we see the complaining in the camp. And this is the point that's not in there. The complaining in the camp. So the building project brought severe economic hardships for the builders. And as a result of the intense work on the walls, many of the Jews neglected to plant crops to feed their families. And furthermore, the wealthy, wealthier Jews, instead of looking on their people with compassion, they're instead preying on them for profit. So we have these, these complaints, and we can look at the list and see what they're complaining about. First, their food. 
First, their food. They're complaining about their food. They were large families with little food. That presents a problem. Large family, little food. These were, the, the, they were likely grumbling because they owned no land and they're hungry. They enlisted in Nehemiah's unpaid work por- workforce and emergency army. And this took them away from their daily work. And now they have no money to buy food. These people lived in such a way that they depended on their daily or weekly earnings in order to survive. They'd been working hard. They were tired. And when the men do have a moment to go home, they're faced with hungry children and angry spouses. They're at their wit's end. Listen, these verses are, are suggesting domestic strife. There are accusations from the wives that their husbands are failing to provide for them in the home. It, it sure is nice to join up and have a cause to improve the city, but it's not putting food on the table. If they starve to death, what good are they to anyone? And what we have here is families railing against one another. And they're looking to Nehemiah to solve their problem. So they're complaining about their food. And then we see that they're complaining about their farms. Complaining about their farms. The Jews who were working on the wall were forced to mortgage their land, their vineyards, and their homes to buy food. And two verses later, we learn that they can't pay their debt and they're losing their land and their homes. And so the wealthier Jews loaned them money to to the others to help them make ends meet. But then they took their land for collateral. Now, there were consequences for unpaid debt and the situation was dire. Families would be expected to sell their children as temporary servants in order to pay for their debt. However, if the current condition prevailed and their lands were forfeited, then what was going to happen is they were going to face irreversible servitude. And Israel provided a legal code for these circumstances. You would work a fair period of labor for the creditor, and there was also a time limit on the servitude for debt. No one could serve more than six years. And when a person was freed, they went out debt-free. So the poor had rights entrenched in the law. Leviticus also gives rights to those who had the possibility of forfeiture of land. And so if a person fell into poverty and lost their property or land, there had to be opportunities to return that land to the original owner. It could be bought back at a reasonable price by the original owner. It could be bought back by what's called a kinsman redeemer. That is someone in the family who would buy the property. So the property would still be in the family. Or during the year of Jubilee, which was the 50-year mark, the seventh of seven Sabbaths, the land would automatically revert back, according to the law of Moses, back to the family and its original owner. So there's these complaints of the that their farms, they don't, they don't have them anymore. They, they can't grow food. Third, their finances. Verse 4. They had to borrow money to pay for the taxes. So they're living on borrowed money. This was due to the taxes by the Persians. Taxes were known to be severe during this time. It's interesting that paying taxes was just as unpopular in the 5th century as it is today. Nobody likes to pay taxes. 
It didn't matter how they borrowed the money, the people found themselves in debt with exorbitant interest rates being levied against them. In fact, one Persian scholar stated that by the end of the 5th century BC, loan sharks, who, who appear to have been fellow Jews, were charging high interest rates. Earlier, the prophet Ezekiel had complained about the abomination of those who demanded interest and profit by extortion in Ezekiel 22:12. So the cry has included food, farms, finances, and lastly, their families. They had already mortgaged a property. They're now being faced with the prospect of selling their children into a form of slavery. And it was worse as some of their daughters had already been enslaved to their creditors. They had no means to redeem them. In fact, one commenter or commentator suggests that verse 5, when it speaks of daughters, Speaking of the creditors gratifying their lusts as payment for delaying foreclosure on the loans. Things are ugly. Poverty, famine, debt, enslavement, and apparently some form of prostitution. How bad can things get? How bad can they get? We look, they look to Nehemiah for help. I want to pause real quick for a moment and reflect on the zeal of the people of God to work even when they must have been inwardly hurting a great deal. They had for a while at least considered the work of, of God greater than the needs of their own families. And to be honest, it kind of reminds me of Jesus' words that we are to consider him of greater value than our wives and our children in Matthew 7. I'm not saying that ministry is to be greater, but Jesus is to be greater than everything in our life. Even more interesting is the depth of trouble that the people have fallen into. Times were about as bad as they could possibly be for some of them involving grievances not only about themselves, but about their families. It's one thing to suffer yourself, but it's quite another thing to watch a family member suffer and to feel like you, like the right, whether, you, whether it's right or wrong, that, that the reason for their suffering is your responsibility. You can imagine the anger that they had. They're looking at their family suffering at the hands of fellow Jews. Despair was in the air, and it's a potent weapon for Satan. He's dividing Jew from Jew. Bringing instability into the camp. This was so much greater than old Sanballat and Tobiah and anybody else. Listen, you know as well as I do just the thought that a brother or sister in Christ has behaved iniquitously against you as recipe for cynicism. Cynicism against the church cynicism against church leaders, and cynicism against God himself. If you can't find kindness and understanding in the church, you might as well forget about finding it at all. And you just write it off as one more failed experiment. And I'm certain at this point, Satan is pleased with himself, and he's smiling as he's bringing division and what lies at the heart of the problem that now emerged was issues of inequality. 
We only have to glance at verse 5 to see this. Some in the city are saying that our children are as good as their children. Why, why should one section suffer while other sections don't suffer? Why should the accident of wealth mean that some have more than they need and others do not have enough to even survive? Those who own no land and were dependent on those that had land are angry with those who owned and controlled the means of production. There is a huge problem. So we move on. What will happen? Well, we see the confrontation of correction. In these next five verses, Nehemiah addresses the problem. He hits it head on. Listen, we can't just sweep problems under the rug or pretend like these problems don't exist. But instead, problems have to be confronted. And there are those who believe that leaders should never confront sin or deal with problems in a straightforward manner. But let me be clear. That philosophy that problems should never be confronted or sin should never be confronted does not stand the test of Scripture. God confronted Adam. Nathan confronted David. Jesus confronted the Pharisees. Paul confronted Peter. I could go on and on. A good leader will confront people. Nehemiah had to confront the sin and the sinners if he was going to get this mess straightened out. And so let's see the response. I find it interesting that the first recorded response of Nehemiah is one of anger. Now, some might say, well, look at Nehemiah. He's supposed to be a man of God and a leader of God's people. How can he possibly be so angry? Why is he so mad? Isn't it a sin to be angry? Well, anger is not always bad. In fact, we're told to be angry and sin not in Ephesians. It's not a prohibition against anger. It is possible to be angry and sinful as well. Nehemiah's anger is one of righteous indignation. Indignation is anger that is the result of an injustice or a sin committed against someone. Webster defines it as this, anger or extreme anger mingled with contempt, disgust, or abhorrence. The anger of a superior, extreme anger, particularly the wrath of God against sinful men. Indignation is righteous anger. It's free from rage and retaliation. The type of anger, this type of, of anger alone, isn't necessarily a sin. We have to remember God gets angry. In fact, in Psalm chapter 7, we read that God is angry with the wicked every single day. God's anger is never sinful. Jesus displayed anger in Mark. We're told that he looked at the people with anger. Jesus was also angry with the Pharisees because they were more concerned with their observance of the Sabbath than with the needs of others. They were dedicated to their dead and legalistic religion while ignoring the needs of hurting people that surrounded them. This injustice angered the Lord. He makes a whip. He drives these sellers of, of goods out of the temple. The commercialization of God's house enraged Jesus. This was a display of holy anger. It was a righteous indignation. Likewise, Nehemiah is indignant at the unjust actions of the Jewish people who took advantage of the workers. He was angry at the exploitation of the poor. A Christian that insists that the initial reaction to every circumstance be forgiveness is a sick Christianity. 
When we say, well, well, you, you can never be angry. You got to acqui- have this acquiescent to forgiveness. It's not Christianity. Just want it to be clear that Nehemiah's response is the right reaction to immoral conduct that hurts the poor. And I can't help but wonder if we feel the same way when it comes to the poor among us. So we see the response. Now let's see the reasoning. Look at verse 7. He says he took counsel with himself. That's an interesting thing to say. I took counsel with myself. I don't, we don't know. Is he talking to himself? We don't know. We know this. He wanted to avoid some sort of ridiculous thing that he would later regret. So what's he do? He takes a moment to consider his response. He ruled his heart. Nehemiah controlled his emotions. A leader that has no self-control will ultimately ruin more than he fixes. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 16, 32. A man without self-control is like a city broken into a, in two and left without walls. Proverbs 25, 28. Nehemiah weighs the problem and discerns how he's going to handle the problem. We have seen the response, the reasoning. Now let's see the rebuke. He says that he brought charges against the nobles and the rulers. The idea is that he sharply admonished them. No one wants to be admonished. But a leader has to take that responsibility seriously and warn of behavior that's not pleasing or honoring God. God's word has even a great thing uh, given or has given pastors this command to rebuke others when needed. As for those who, who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. It says rebuke them. 1 Timothy 5.20 Preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2 This testimony is true. Therefore, Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. Titus 1.13 I don't know of anyone that likes to get rebuked. People today despise even the slightest hint of correction. Listen to Solomon's contrast between a fool and a wise man. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. The problem today is that most People are like little children when they're corrected, right? They reject God's word. They reject his leadership. They run off like a rebellious little child. And that's the problem. Listen to God's word again. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. When Paul had to deal with Peter for his compromise, he said this, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, Galatians 2.11. When someone is wrong, they must be faced and corrected. But this kind of correction, this kind of rebuke, should be carried out solemnly and graciously. P. 
People today do not want to be dealt with about their error. However, a leader who refuses to rebuke when necessary is not a biblical leader. The guy who corrects you cares about you. He loves you. The one who does not correct you does not love you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 27, 6. It takes real love to rebuke someone when it's needed. The leader that corrects you is not an enemy. He's not correcting you because he's an enemy. He's correcting you because he's a friend. Now notice the robbery. D, the robbery. In verse 7, Nehemiah charges them with exacting interest from their fellow countrymen, thereby profiting from their suffering. The law of Moses prohibits this. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Deuteronomy 23, 19. The wealthy Jews are robbing their brothers by taking advantage of their situation. And Nehemiah calls this public meeting. And he required the money leaders to attend the meeting. And he accuses them to their faces. <clears throat> Notice that he doesn't talk about them. He calls a meeting and says to their face what they're doing. And the poor are being pawned and sold into slavery. So the rich were getting richer. The poor are getting poorer. The poor are being exploited. And what's the response? How do they respond when Nehemiah confronts them? Nothing. They don't say anything. They were exposed and they had no defense for their problem. So what's the, what's the remedy? E, the remedy. Nehemiah straight up tells them that their dealings are not good, that they were in the wrong, and he ties their sinful actions to a lack of the fear of God. And his argument is that if they really feared God, then they would not be treating others this way. Because a proper fear of God will keep us from evil. He says, if you really feared God, then you wouldn't be treating your brothers like this. And then we see F, the reproach. Look at the last part of verse 9. It says, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. So he says, the way we're treating one another is causing the Gentiles to mock and blaspheme the God that we claim to worship. And this is always the result when believers fail to live obedient to the word of God. The world looks at such people and laughs at people who make a profession of faith but never seem to get victory in their life to bring their life into the obedience of Jesus Christ. And then we see the restitution, G. Nehemiah is calling for this usury to stop immediately. The guilty parties need to return the land, the vineyards, the olive groves, houses, and interest money that they had charged. In other words, what Nehemiah is suggesting is for the year of Jubilee to happen right here and right now. In which all confiscated property and money is returned to the people. Nehemiah is calling for, for this all to be fixed now. Not at some later time, but right here Right now, this is how it should be in our life. When we're corrected, fix the problem immediately. We don't wait, as it will all fix that later. What is perhaps even heart-stopping is the fact that Nehemiah admits his own involvement in what's going on. Now, I'm not 
going to get into the difference uh, that the commentators have on this. Just, just know that Nehemiah was involved in the very practice that he admits must be stopped. And it's very likely that in verse 10, Nehemiah is making a plea to his fellow, uh, to his fellow uh, countrymen to follow his example and that he did not charge interest on anything. You couldn't not build private wealth at the cost of injustice and oppression. Moving along, let's see the response. How are they going to respond? Well, without argument, everyone agrees to do everything. Then Nehemiah said, it would seem Nehemiah's rebuke cut straight to the heart. They realized that they were wrong, and they're willing to correct the problem. Tragically, this is not the response of people today. It would seem that very seldom is someone corrected that responds positively to that correction. In fact, many professing believers today are too proud to admit that they're wrong as Christians. We must always be willing to admit when we're wrong and make things right. A person who refuses to admit when they're wrong can never be a good leader. Look what Nehemiah does. He makes them take an oath. And, and he made them do this in front of the priests to ensure that they would make good on their promise. Nehemiah is, is not playing around here. He's like, we're going to take an oath right here in front of the priests. I'm going to make sure that you're held accountable before God. Now let's see the reminder. I, the reminder, Nehemiah engages in an act of symbolism. He shakes out his garment Everybody would have known what he was doing because you'd shake out your garment so treasured objects that you hid in the fold of your garment would fall to the ground. Nehemiah shook out his garment, causing the items to fall to the ground. Everybody knew exactly what he was doing. This was a reminder that the judgment of God would fall if they failed to keep their promise. J, the repentance. Look at verse 13. All of the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. There, i got to be honest. There are some times where, where I could use an Amen or a praise the Lord when I'm up here preaching. Like somebody say, Amen, or praise the Lord. That's what they said here. Amen, and praise the Lord. Let it be. That's what Amen means. Let it be. Let it be so. So they quickly responded to Nehemiah's correction. He had rebuked them to their wrongdoing. And they, they said, Amen. Praise the Lord. Let it be. Their positive response reveals a genuine humility on their part. And what did they do? They did according to the promise. They turned their amen into action. It is one thing to sit sometimes and listen to someone talk or listen to a, a good sermon and sit out there and say, Amen. Go preacher. Oh boy, you really stepped on some toes today. You really got with it today. Boy, that really hit me deep. That's great. But we're called to put it into action. Sometimes when somebody says, I want to say, what are you going to do with it? You see, we have to go beyond lip service. You know, repentance is genuine when people stop doing wrong and they start doing right. It has been said that repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. Yes, repentance is a change of mind, but it will lead to a change in direction. If there is sin that we must confess, then we need to confess the sin. 
May God help us to be quick to confess and forsake those things which are not pleasing to God. May we, like those in that time, when we hear God's word confront us, that we'd say, Amen, let it be so. Let me go out and do it. Now let's notice the conviction of character. The conviction of character. Nehemiah was a man of great conviction and of great character. In the concluding verses of this chapter, he draws from his personal testimony to give us some principles regarding integrity, character, and compassion in leadership. First, notice his demanding charge. His demanding charge. Verse 14 starts with moreover, which is a connection of the following verses with the previous verses. The people had dealt with famine, this burdensome taxation. They were tired. They were weak. They're poverty stricken. On top of all that, the wealthier Jews were taking advantage of them by loaning them money at these high interest rates, then foreclosing on them and taking their land. And on top of all that, those that were in debt had their children enslaved. It's a bad situation. Nehemiah represented King Artaxerxes, and he was the governor. Nehemiah was the governor of this, of this area. This was the highest-ranking position outside of the Persian government. Nehemiah's term lasted 12 years, he tells us. Now, let me be clear. Being governor meant that you received certain benefits. In other words, you were well taken care of. But what about Nehemiah? What would he do with all of the luxuries that came with being governor. Well, let's see what Nehemiah does. First, we notice his distinct character. He describes that neither he nor his brothers ate the food allowance that was provided to them. You see, he operated differently than the leaders that came before him. He had every right to sit back and live off the taxes of other people, but he didn't. He refused to use his position in this way. Instead, he sought to live a life that would please God. The former governors used their position to take advantage of the people and were a burden to them. They took bread and wine and 40 shekels of silver. Let me be clear that this was what was to be expected to be paid to the governor. But not Nehemiah. He says, I refuse to burden the people. Unlike the former governors. This was a matter of principle. Let me pause and just say it's amazing how professing Christians will use unscriptural rationalizations to justify sinful action. They will say things like this. Everyone is doing it, so that must make it okay. Or I'm not doing anything that, that is worse than the next guy. And we'll come up with all kinds of ways to not be generous with our money. Well, nobody else does that. Nobody else gives that percentage. Nobody else wants to give to the church. Nobody else wants to do this. Nobody else wants to help that person. We come up with all kinds of ways. And we even say things like this, right? Well, I don't have it right now. That's the excuse you give to a bill collector. Not to give to God. Well, I don't have it right now. Yet we will go out to eat multiple times in a week, but we don't have it right now. Or we'll say, I can't afford to give a tithe to the church. I can't afford to give the church a percentage so that they can do ministry. 
But we'll have no problem making that new car payment. Or buying that exorbitant house and making that huge house payment because we need a five-bedroom house for two people, you know. We will spend money on what we want to please ourselves and gratify our own sinful desires and never even give God a second thought. We'll spend our money and, and, and not even think, how will this affect what I can give to the Lord? Listen to what Paul says. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Paul says, oh, you comparing yourself to the guy down the street because you have more wealth and, 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 and you're, you're doing this and that and that and you're comparing yourself to someone else? Paul says, you lack understanding. Because it doesn't matter what others are doing. Because they're not your standard. The word of God is your standard. You see, a good leader, a good Christian, will refuse to live by man's standards and will instead live by God's standards. Nehemiah's actions and his philosophy of life matched his confession of faith. Does yours? Is yours? You see, we want to enjoy the benefits of the church, but never give to the church. Let's notice his dominant concern. So why did he not take this money? Why was it that he was doing all this? He answers us in the last part of verse 15. He says, because of the fear of God. You see, too often in Christian circles, the fear of God is seen as this negative sense. Nehemiah feared God more than he feared men. He lived for God's glory. He sought that uh, all that he would do would bring his life in conformity to God. He took God's word seriously. He gave reverence to what God said and, and took God's word as this is God's word speaking to me. As though God himself were speaking to him directly. And so the motivation for Nehemiah's generosity was the fear of God. Now check this out because I love it when the Bible just brings things together, right? So Nehemiah's motivation for generosity is the fear of God. Following Pentecost, the early Christians practiced a generous lifestyle that's unheard of. They shared their possessions with the needy. As if they did not own those possessions. Wow! Mind-blowing, right? As if God actually owned everything they have. Maybe because he does. Now what is fascinating is the reason they exhibited this behavior of, of bringing in everything they had and giving to the poor. The reason they did this was, was the awe of God. According to Acts 2.43. And that word awe in the Greek is the word phobos. Also known as fear came upon every soul. You see God was more than just some theological position to them. 
He was everything. He was everything. They saw each other. And they were just, they just, they were like, we're just passing through this world. And because they knew they were just passing through, they held loosely onto material possessions. The absence of, of this fear of God is why we ignore the needy and trample on the blessing of fellowship and accumulate all of our worldly toys. As Christians, we know far too well how to fiddle while Rome burns. Seriously, we play more than we pray. We know that so often God is so far from our thoughts and so far from our hearts, we struggle having spiritual conversations even with other Christians. We don't even know what to talk about with other Christians. We can't even have spiritual conversations. We don't even know how to bring up Christ with other believers because our hearts are so far from God. And if we're truly honest, we admit that we find great pleasure in politics or sports or music, or technology, more so than our fellowship with God. And that, my friends, is a problem. Let's notice his duty continued. i got to hurry. His duty continued. Verse 6. We see that Nehemiah continues God's work. Nehemiah certainly could have quit, but he doesn't. He could have let God's work go, and he sat, sat back and enjoyed the pleasure of all this worldly enjoyment. Nehemiah goes on to say that he did not buy any land. The land had no value. He could have bought it all up and taken advantage of it and then resold it after the walls built. He doesn't do that. Then we read that even Nehemiah's servants were busy doing God's work. And then in verse 17, Nehemiah makes it clear that he took no provisions from the people he provided for himself and his servants. And then finally, look at verse, uh, the, the final verse. There's this, or verse 28, I believe. There's this extensive menu, or verse 18. There's this extensive menu from, for one day, right? One day, he says, one ox, six sheep, and birds. And then every 10 days, all kinds of wine. What a menu, a lot of food. Great deal of planning, great deal of money. Now look at the last part of verse 18. You see that Nehemiah was motivated by compassion and moved to generosity. His purpose for his generosity was their service was too heavy. Nehemiah's calling as to minister unto the economically depressed community that was on the other side of the tracks Look at this, Nehemiah, who is now a relatively wealthy man, sees it as his duty and his delight to share with others from his bounty. The sight of need moved Nehemiah to action. He refused to pretend to not notice the need. Nehemiah loves the people and his compassion for them. Listen, church, we must care about others. Lastly, let's notice this. His desire confirmed. He prays this bold prayer. In fact, a prayer that we'd rarely hear today. If we prayed this kind of prayer, we might be accused of being arrogant. Nehemiah lived his life in a way that he could call upon God to treat him as he has treated other people. 
Nehemiah was willing to be dealt with by God the way he dealt with others. He had invested his life, his labor, and his love into the people of God. He's not building an empire or memorial to himself. He did not care if the world remembered him, but he did want God to remember him. His focus was on God's favor, not man's, not money, but on the master. In closing, let me ask you this question. Why do we have money? Ultimately for this reason, or for the reason that we have anything in our life, right? All that we are and all that we have is so that we can bring God glory. You see, the love of money will only cause strife. But if we have the idea that we have it in order to glorify God, so much can be accomplished. Those who have received must must first be the ones in line to give much away. Generosity should be the hallmark of those who have known the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In other words, generosity should be the hallmark of the church. Of those who have received much, much is expected. This is the issue that Paul addressed when talking about the principle of giving. He urges the Corinthians that their abundance should for the, uh, be given for the needs of others. He says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was yet rich, yet for your sake he became poor, and that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The passage teaches us to be generous in meeting the needs of others, particularly those within the covenant community. From a heart that is conscious of receiving greater generosity from the Lord himself. And what is your motivation for living a life of generosity? Why should we be someone who wants to give to others? Why should we be someone that that wants to be generous to others, including the church? Why in the world would we want to give the church money? Our motivation is a life that's lived in the presence of God. You say, well, well, pastor, are you saying that if I don't give to the church or if I'm not living generously, then I'm not living in the presence of God? That's precisely what I'm saying. On one level, we give an account to no greater authority than to God. On another level, we should be captivated by a sense of wonder that we are, we are loved and that we're kept by God, which should compel us to live our lives in such a way that we are completely sold out to Christ. So what I'm saying to you is that when you grip your possessions with a clenched fist, it is only evidence that you're not sold out to Christ. C.T. Studd said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. In other words, following the Lord's leading in Christian vocation means that other things must be left behind. We must be prepared to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. And this may sound like a life of judgery, but ask anyone who has tasted of that kingdom of God 
and what it has to offer. And they will tell you it's a, it's a life that's far from drudgery. It is gratitude finding self-expression and faithful living. If Christ has died for me, what else can I do but give myself away to him? No matter what the cost may be. If he is, do we really believe if he's died for me, what my only response is, God, all I have is me. Take me, all my time, all my possessions, and everything I own. It is for your glory. What is Nehemiah teaching you this morning? Have you truly given all of yourself away to him who has died for you? What are you holding back? What do you have held on to with clenched fists saying, God, I will not give it up? It's his anyway. Open your hand and give to the Lord and enable his work to continue. Let's close a prayer.